Good morning. We are actually not in uh, Galatians. As, um, as Tom mentioned, it was a corollary passage, an important corollary passage. Um, we will probably reference the text uh, of Galatians, but we want to focus on Acts chapter 21 this morning. We're continuing our study through Acts chapter 21, or the book of Acts in general as well, of course. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer and then we can jump into the text. Lord, help us as we consider your text. We need understanding, uh, not just to gather data, but we need understanding for um, how we can supernaturally and for your glory respond to the truth. I pray that in our study this morning that we will be people who, as a result of hearing what you have to say in this important book, that we will be people who are enthralled with your grace enthralled with the reality that you are the God of grace, that you are a merciful God, and that you have set us free. So help us this morning as we, as we look at this text to glorify you. In your name I pray, amen. We come to the text this morning uh, at chapter 21 of the book of Acts, starting in verse 17, um, and we will look at this morning verse 17 through verse 26 of Acts chapter 21, 17 through 26. Um, you mentioned, if, you, if you were with us last week, you remember that I mentioned that we had a little bit of a controversy or a controversial situation in the previous text. In this text, we have a controversial issue as well. If you read ahead and you've read it, and, you're, and if you're thinking about it all, your mind has probably already started asking yourself a lot of questions, and that's good. Um, this, has been, this is probably, the, probably one of the most controversial or difficult texts in the book of Acts. Uh, how do we interpret this text? How do we understand this text? How does this text really work? And it typically falls into two categories. People, have they've, have, have they've studied this text over the decades and even millennia, um, have come down on one of two sides. On the one side, it is the group that would say that Paul was wrong in how he approached the storyline or the situation. And, and he failed here and he was wrong. The other view... Uh, would say that he is right, but oftentimes the way that they've come to the answer of why he was right is kind of convoluted. And so what I'd like to do this morning is look at the text and wrestle with this. Um, I'll tell you right up in the beginning, I think Paul was right in what he did here. He, he did not fail. He did, it was not a failure on his part in his ministry uh, in an overarching way. And I think that the context as we go on tells us that, as well as I think the context beforehand tells us that as well. But what I would say, rather than becoming really convoluted and trying to understand what's going on in this text, I think we can, if we just think our, uh, of the flow of the book of Acts, I think you'll find it will make sense. Um, as well as outside of it, when we, go to the, when we mention briefly the book of Galatians, I think it will make sense what's going on here. But it's not just the, our goal to discover the controversy and the answer to the dilemma that we find in the text, but it's what do we do with this text? Because the the author, Luke, and ultimately God, did not give us this text so we could have something to, to, to banter about with and try to figure out, controversy-wise. That's not the reason why this is given. But I think there's a really important uh, lesson that we can gather from this text as we walk our way through it, and hopefully it'll help you think through it and come to worship Christ in an even greater way and love one another in an even greater way. So, with that in mind, let's read the text, and then we'll work our way through it. <clears throat> Starting in verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James, and to all the elders, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one 
the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealots for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you, for uh, we have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing uh, in uh, what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, having, or, I'm sorry, giving notice when the days of purif- purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. That's our text this morning. And if you've listened as we've read it, it's, it's, it's kind of chunky, isn't it? When you just read through it, it's kind of chunky what's going on first. But did you sense the controversy? Especially in light of what Tom just read in Galatians? There's a little bit of an issue here. Because it seems like, if I may just put it out right in the beginning, it seems like that we, if we're not careful, we have perhaps some sort of schizophrenic theological Paul here. Because on the one hand, we have the letter to the Galatians, which, by the way, is a relatively early letter in which he says to the Galatians, the law does what? The law doesn't justify, does it? As a matter of fact, ultimately, the law doesn't justify, it kills. And it condemns. And then the other side of the coin, you have Paul here in Jerusalem doing what? Seemingly standing with the law. Standing with and, and, and submitting to and obeying the law. It seems like there's some sort of controversy going on here. And then to combine it even more, James already said, and the elders already said, we have believers here who are what? What does it say? Are zealous for the law. Would that not, if I may just say this real quick, this is just an overview, would that not, in our understanding of Paul, cause some at least yellow flags to go off in his mind? Yes, you would think it would. But then what does he do? James and the elders tell him what to do, which basically is follow the law. And he goes. Now, that's just the general overview of the, of the issue, the controversial issue. And again, there's two different views, generally speaking. Either he did what was right or did what was wrong. There's kind of no other options, is there? Those who argue he was wrong say he was wrong because he took such a strong stand, for example, in, in Galatians, but also 1 and 2 Corinthians and many other places. Ephesians, Philippians, he, he, he spoke about it continually, didn't he? This legalistic mindset, even Romans he talked about it. And yet here he seems to fall in line. What do we do with that? 
And so I think that's what we need to work through. What we're going to do is we're going to start out in verse 17 and work our way through to try to get the flow of the text and understanding of the text and try to figure out how we should interpret this text and then what to do with the text. So as we've done typically in narrative text, we kind of wander through the text. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to wander. Sorry, no really nice clean outline. That's really purposeful on my part. Starting in verse 17, you'll notice it says, when, he, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Stop on 17 for a second, because it's some of the color of the story, but it's important. It's important color. They come to Jerusalem. When they arrive, <clears throat> the brothers, implication, these brothers are in Jerusalem. The brothers receive us gladly. Now, the question has to be asked, who are these brothers, right? I would present to you that we have no other data at this point in time of who the brothers are, except to say that Luke describes them as brothers, which means what? They're brothers in Christ. They're believers. Now, some would argue, and I don't think it's right, but some would argue this is the at least majority or massive amount of people that are believers in Jerusalem. I would disagree. I suspect that what we find here um, is a group of people in a home, most likely. A small group of people. He arrived and he went to a place to stay and the brothers there greeted him. These brothers seemingly are at least not James and probably not the elders. They show up in verse 18. That doesn't mean they're not the James and the, and the elders are not believers, but these brothers being referenced, I would argue, is probably a pretty small group. Small group of believers who, for either they were told Paul's coming ahead of time, um, or they ran into Paul while he was there. Either once he arrived, either way, it's a small group of brothers. How do I know that? Well, because later on, James and the elders say something. When they find out that you're here, future tense, implication being they haven't yet what? Found out, James and the elders say, there's going to be problems. So the idea here in this text in verse 17 is this is a small group. And it is a small group of true believers in Jerusalem. And Paul and the group with him, including Luke, are hanging out with with the small group of believers and probably crashed at their house that night. It may have been a few houses and people were together. And so maybe they went to a couple different houses. We don't know, again, how big this group is. Most likely a pretty small group. The masses of people who claim to be believers in Jerusalem had not yet found out. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and to all the elders present. Typically, there was an apostle at Jerusalem pretty much any time. There's at least one. It's seemingly, at this point in time, there's only one, James. Sometimes there's more than one. But at this point, there's only one. <clears throat> so Paul and those traveling with Paul present themselves to James And all the elders also were present. That is, the elders of the church in Jerusalem are present. Again, color of the story. So now Paul, Luke, and the other people traveling with Paul and Luke are are now present with James and the elders. 
They greet one another, and Paul immediately begins to speak. Verse 19. After the greeting, Paul, he, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. It's an interesting statement that, that Luke records here. And I think it helps us understand the text. Were there some believers that were saved in the various towns that were Jews? Yes, there were. Did Paul always go to the Jewish people first? Yeah, yes, he did. If there was a temple, if there was a tabernacle, right? Or I'm mean, not a tabernacle, I'm sorry, a synagogue, did he? Yes, as long as there's a synagogue, he would go to the Jews first. And according to what we've already seen in 20 chapters, not always, but sometimes Jews repented and believed too, didn't they? Of course. Luke gets back to Jerusalem, and what does he do? What does the text say? He relates to them. What's that? No, he doesn't relate all that he's done and all that's happened, right? What does it say in verse 19? All that God has done among the Gentiles. He doesn't mention the Jews, does he? He doesn't bring them up at all. It's not even, it's not even on Paul's outline, <laughs> as it were, of what he wants to share with, with, the, with James and the elders. He shares with them about the Gentiles and primarily about what God has done among the Gentiles. It seems kind of odd, actually, doesn't it? Even though we know that Paul is, a, is, is the apostle going to the Gentiles, it does seem kind of odd, does it not, that he's come to Jerusalem and the Jews, the Jewish Christians, the elders and James, and he says nothing about the Jews, him being a Jew himself? Yes, he's, he's, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, but does it not seem odd? Since his first emphasis in every town he goes to, if there's a synagogue, is to go to the Jews? Does it seem kind of odd he doesn't even mention the Jews? It does. But I think it's purposeful. Yes. Uh, it's several times. I don't remember exactly where it is, but... Yeah. Yeah, this is not a surprise, but at the same time, it's weird that he doesn't mention Jews at all. It doesn't even, there's been Jews that are saved. There's Jews in the church in these various towns, are there not? Yes, there are. It may very well be, there may even be one or two Jews traveling with him that are saved. We don't know the complete complement of who's in his group. What's that? And Luke's there, sure. So it's just really intriguing that he says, that, that Luke records, he related one by one. So he was specific, right? You see it, one by one? He walks through and gives them a chronological description of every city he's gone to, every town he's been at, and what God has done in the midst of the Gentiles. How God has worked among the Gentiles. Now that, again, store that in the back of your mind. Verse 20. And when they, that is the elders and James, heard it, they glorified God. Appropriately so, right? God is moving. The message of the gospel is spreading throughout the known world. And it is spreading to the Gentiles. That's a good thing. If you're not sure if they would think that way, remember, 
they already had the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15, and they talked about this very thing. The elders and James was there, and they talked about it, and Peter was there, and they talked about it. And they ended up rejoicing that the, that the gospel was going to the Gentiles. So it makes sense that they would glorify God. But at the same time, it's really kind of intriguing. The, the shift takes place pretty quick, doesn't it? He goes, you get the sense that Paul's discussion with them or description to the elders and James is pretty long-winded. Don't you get that? He goes one by one, city by city, and he's recounting the various things that God has done. That's going to take some time. Verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified God, and appropriately so. But it is interesting that they have this blur, Luke records this blurb, that when they heard it, they glorified God, but the immediate next thing that happens is, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands... There are among the Jews of those who had believed. There's a quick shift in the conversation. They're glorifying God, and then there's a quick shift, and James and the elders, and the, the actual translation probably should be more accurately read this way. You see, brother, how many tens of thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. I mean, it's literally what it says. The idea is myriads, tens of thousands of people who have believed, Jews who have believed. It's talking about here in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? So initially, appropriately so, it sounds like there should be a lot of rejoicing, right? Tens of thousands of Jews have believed. Would you not expect that just like Luke records here with after Paul's description, and when they heard it, they glorified God. Would you not expect that at that point? Of course you would, as Paul describes it. Would you not expect when James and the disciples, I'm sorry, and the elders say, you see, brother, how many thousands there were among the Jews who have believed. Would, now, there's a number of other things that come, part, uh, come out uh, about being stated next, but would you not expect somewhere along the line that the text would record that Paul was rejoicing? Would you expect that? It's not there. It's not there. James and the elders declare to Paul there are tens of thousands of Jews who have believed. And Paul doesn't rejoice. At least it's not recorded. You would think that Luke would record that, wouldn't you? Because this is news to him. It wasn't tens of thousands in Acts 15. It wasn't tens of thousands at all. There was a small church. It had been driven out for the most part of the city because of persecution. Now they return a few years later and there's tens of thousands. You would think that Paul would rejoice that the church has exploded. And you would think, one would think that Luke would record that Paul would rejoice. But it doesn't say that. Why not? Why not? Well, it is interesting because right after he says that, that there many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed, the very next statement 
from the elders in James is they are all zealous for the law. Again, what did we say in the very beginning? If you know Paul at all, you know as well as I do that there would at least be yellow flags that would go up in Paul's mind. Would there not? It would start, the, at minimum, the yellow flags would be firing in Paul's mind immediately. Galatians, most likely, had already been written. I would not say red flags were for a very important reason, but yellow flags definitely would be popping. Warning, young Will Robinson, something's not right here. Something is not right in Paul's mind. James and the elders, wow, God's really at work among the Gentiles. That's exciting. And by the way, Paul, Luke, and everybody else, I want you to know God's really at work here in Jerusalem too. Tens of thousands of people among the Jews have come to faith in Christ. Oh, by the way, they're really zealous after the law. What? Huh? Right? Ah, something, something's not passing the sniff test. It goes on, verse 21, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Is that true? Is that true? No, it's not true. It's not even close. What has Paul been preaching with regard to Moses and the law? Has he been preaching, um, have, has he been preaching that, you, that the people should forsake Moses? Has he been preaching that? No. Has he been preaching them to, to these people, you must not get uh, circumcise your children? No. Has he been preaching to them, you should not walk according to customs, Jewish customs, generally speaking? No. Not at all. Not even close. What has he been preaching? Christ and him crucified, is the and he is the fulfillment of the law. He fulfills the law, and as Jesus said, I did not come to cancel it, right? But to... Fulfill it. What has Paul been preaching? Has he been preaching the same message Christ preached? Yes. Has he been preaching that, 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 that the law of Moses will not save? Yes. Does that mean that they should forsake the law of Moses? No. That's not what it means. At all. So, Yes. So, so, in other words, what does Paul find out data-wise? Finds out several things right away. Tens of thousands, in Paul's mind, ready? In Paul's mind, as he's, as he's getting new data, right? It's all new data for him. Not new data for James and, and, the, and the elders. It is new data for Paul. So his new data he gets is there's ten thousands, tens of thousands of believers in Christ. Data piece number one. Data piece number two. They're all zealous for the law. 
New data, right? Important data, isn't it? And number three, they've received lies about Paul's teachings. Number four, not only have they received lies of Paul's teachings, they believed it. Now, do you think Paul's got issues here now? Do you think Paul's got problems? Do you think Paul's concerned? Do you think that Paul is concerned about James even and the elders? James being an apostle. Do you think he's got concerns? Yes! He absolutely has concerns because what he just got, new data, is absolutely contrary to the truth. Absolutely truncated gospel. And it's very troubling to Paul. It's incredibly troubling as he hears this information. And so, interestingly enough, the elders in James respond to the situation. The lies, the being zealous for the law, and yet claiming to be believers. If I may just stop for a second, I wonder. This is just a wonder. I'm not going to be authoritative on this. I wonder if, there, if Luke is establishing a contrast already. A contrast between verse 17 and verse 20. I wonder. I wonder if Luke is establishing a contrast. There are brothers, Luke and therefore Paul, and Luke, of course, writing this much later, is looking backwards at it all and being led by the Holy Spirit. He calls this first group that Paul comes in contact with and Luke and the people following him as brothers, right? He calls them brothers. And then we have the second group. Well, the second group is James and the elders, but then we get this third group who are described as having believed, but they've got a mess on their hands. Could I submit something to you? In Paul's theology, in a Pauline theology, if I can use that term, here's what we have. We have a group of believers that are stated in 17. We got a group of believers, the elders and, and James, who are probably kind of confused. Does that make sense? At this point, they're kind of confused. Unless you think, how is that possible? I mean, come on, James is an, is, 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 is a, uh, is, is an apostle and the elders are elders. Is that possible? Yes. How is that possible? How is it possible mature Christians could be confused? How is it possible even, a, even an apostle could be confused? Well, we've already seen Peter confused, didn't we? Over the whole Gentile Jew thing? Did we not see that? That took until Gen- till Acts 15 before he could sort it out in his mind. I mean, he had the vision from God. He still didn't quite get it until Acts 15. Is it possible that elders could be confused too? Well, yeah. Apostles could be confused too? Yeah. Not when they write inspired text, right? Not when they write inspired text, because that's, according to, according to Peter, in, 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 I think it's 1 Peter, they were born along by the Holy Spirit to produce the texts. The texts are not dependent upon perfect people to write them. It's the Spirit that empowers them and guides them and, and, and bears them along to, to produce the inspired text. But it seems that you have your believers of, of, 
of, of uh, the brothers in Acts 21, 17, you have the confused elders and James at this point, and it would make sense too, in the midst of it, you're ministering to people, it's really easy to get confused, isn't it? And could I say this? It's easy to compromise, isn't it? It is. Now, at the risk of, of, of weaving in today's Christian culture into that time frame, all we got to do is look around at the elders in churches today and how many of them are so consumed with got to make sure my church keeps growing, got to make sure my, that, that the finances are all there, got to make sure that, that, that we're doing things perfectly and well and have all this thing, that thing, and something else in place. It's all the time, isn't it? In danger of compromise. Instead of having an absolute laser focus on faithfulness to the truth. I mean, it boggles my mind that the elders, at some level, it boggles my mind that the elders and James ask that question. What shall we do? We got a problem here. What do we do? Like, why would they even ask the question? If you really think about it, why would they ask the question? What then is to be done? We got a conflict between Paul, and when you say the conflict between Paul and these supposed Christians, it's a conflict not between Paul and the supposed Christians. It's a conflict between Pauline theology and what these Christians, these ones who have believed in Jerusalem are believing. That's the conflict. Now, they've heard a false understanding, right? They believe that false understanding about Paul, though, haven't they? So, verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. There's that future tense. They'll certainly hear that you've come. You get the sense that James and the elders are in a quandary? Do you get the sense they're fearful? Do you hear it there? What do you think they're fearful of? Possibly attacking him and, and arguing with him and, 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 and standing against him. Splitting the church, exactly what I was looking for. They're afraid that the church is going to come apart at the seams. That's what they're afraid of. Is that what they should be afraid of? Even to say they're afraid that these believing Jews will attack Paul. Is that something they should be afraid of? All you got to do is go back to the last chapter. Was Paul afraid of that? <laughs> Was he ever afraid of that? No. Where should James and the elders have been? Focused on glorifying Christ, keeping the, 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 the truth pure, right? And continuing to proclaim the truth purely and simply to these who claim to be believers, but are what? zealous for the law i mean my first when i first read this text my first thought was what is wrong with these elders and james these people didn't come to faith in christ last night well maybe a couple of them did but they've come to faith in christ over the last three four years 
what has the elders and James been doing? That these people could continue to believe the lies. That these people could still continue to be zealous for the law. I mean, you do understand, don't you, that an elder's task, I've, I have not used this term in, in our church since probably the first three or four years, or this phrase, this description in our church since the first three or four years of our church. One of the tasks of an elder is to identify the hot buttons of the church. Does this sound vaguely familiar to anybody? I used to say it all the time. One of the tasks of an elder is to identify the hot buttons of the church. And when he identifies the hot buttons of a church, what's he supposed to do? He's supposed to trounce on it. He's supposed to push on it. All the way down. And you know what happens when he does? One of two things happens, inevitably. Either righteousness pours out and truth pours out, or what happens? Or sin pours out and you have, you have splits, you have rebellion, the pastor may be thrown out, the elders may be thrown out, whatever, right? Those are the type of things that will happen every time. An elder's responsibility when he sees a hot button is to say this, in other words, I wonder if that hot button gets pushed, I wonder if righteousness or sin will pour out. Let's push the button and see what comes out. And we'll deal with what comes out. Does that make sense? You know what happens almost every time when you push the hot button? Sin pours out. And you know why sin pours out? Because it was already there. You've heard me use the illustration before. I'll use it again. Bear with me. Especially for those who may be watching online. Pretend I have a cup here and it's got coffee in it. And pretend that that cup that's full of coffee, the coffee represents sin. I'm not saying coffee is sin, although some of you may think so. <laughs> you think so, right, Tom? Can I get a witness? Yeah. <laughs> some of it can taste like sin. You're right. <laughs> but coffee, it's got sin in it, right? It's sin. It represents sin. The fist is the situation in life. And situations in life come all the time, don't they? And the situation in life comes and it hits the cup. And what happens when it hits the cup? The, what, what happens is there's coffee everywhere. The coffee is staining the carpet. It's all over the person's clothes that was holding the cup. And you ask people, why is coffee everywhere staining the carpet and staining your clothes? Well, because the, the fist hit the cup. And the answer is no. The reason why sin, that is coffee in this case, is everywhere, staining the carpet and staining your clothes is because the coffee representing sin was inside the cup. If the coffee representing sin wasn't inside the cup, but instead water representing righteousness was inside the cup and the situation in life comes and hits it, what's going to spill out? Water's going to spill out. And that, representing righteousness, righteousness spills out everywhere. Why? Because what's inside the cup always comes out. It always does. We can blame the situation in life all we want, which is what I hear all the time. 
Early on in our church, every time I push a hot button and sin would pour out, people would blame me because I was the situation in life. Implication being, if you hadn't hit the cup, Steve, everything would still be fine. And I look at it and say, no, it wouldn't. We would have just continued to do what? Hide and enjoy our sin. That's what would happen. It's the elder's responsibility to press the hot button. Is this a hot button? Did the elders know it was a hot button? And James. Did they know? They clearly knew it was a hot button. And here, perhaps even three or four years later, their, their only response is to ask a question? You know what that means? They never pushed the button. They never, ever did. They avoided it. They, it was almost like as if they're saying, well, you know, just give them time. Just give them time. And eventually, guess what's going to happen? They'll be okay. Is that a biblical understanding? Is it in any way a biblical understanding? The answer is no. The scriptures are really clear, not just for the elders. If we see some Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, he, writing to a church that's all caught up in legalism. Sound familiar? Here's our text. Zealous for the law, caught up in legalism. Paul says what? Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, you who have the Spirit, if you see someone caught in a trespass, go to them, gently restoring them, being careful that you don't get caught in the same temptation. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens. And the burden there is bearing their burden of dealing with their sin and helping them grow and change. Bear one another's bur burdens. Then chapter 6, verse 5 of Galatians wraps it up by saying, each one must do what? Carry his own load. That is, we are to grow so that we can bear our own load, carry our own load. What's happening in the church in Jerusalem? Quite to the contrary. The elders and James are not dealing with this issue. What are they resting on? They're resting on their laurels of what took place in Acts 15. And pretending like something that happened in the dusty recesses of the, the church in Jerusalem's life is somehow going to fix it. And it won't. And now Paul comes in and complicates the whole thing. Because if we know anything about Paul, do you remember just recently, what did he want to do when, when two people were in the stadium? And they... He wanted to get in the midst of them, didn't he? And the other believers had to hold him back. Do you think that maybe that's what they're staring at right here? Paul's about to upset the apple cart. I'm sorry? He's the fist. And the question is, what's in the cup? Does that make sense? The question is, what's in the cup? And the elders and James' response, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And what do they say next? What then is to be done, verse 22? They will certainly hear you've come. If only they won't hear. But certainly they're going to. Man, there's no way we can keep this under wraps. You've got to get that sense, don't you? But we got an idea. 
<laughs> but there's more. <laughs> What's that? But wait, there's more. Certainly they'll hear you have come. Do therefore, here's our great solution. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, most likely a Nazarite vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses. Implication being they're poor. The whole church in Jerusalem, by the way, is poor because they've been under persecution. They're poor. This is one of the reasons, most likely, that Paul is here. One of the reasons he brought back that money that is talked about being collected in, in uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians. He says, but he says to them, purify yourself along with them, verse 24, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what, you have been, what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in, observa uh, in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter with our judgment, and he talks about 25 and following. He's talking about the Acts 15 letter that was sent. So they're referencing the Acts 15. That's why I keep going back to the Acts 15 story. So we're going to skip over that for now. But notice, it's just, again, it's just color because we're really focused on the Jews in, in, in Jerusalem. Verse 26, then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. End of discussion for the day, for our study today. So Paul does what? James and the elder says, what you need to do is you need to go, pay for them, be with them, and walk through that process of the purification. And he may very well have even shaved his head as well. But he purified himself as well. He did. Chapter 8, he took a Nazarite, or chapter, no, I'm sorry, not chapter 8. He's not even a believer yet. Later on, I can't remember the exact chapter, he takes a Nazarite vow as well. There. Is there something wrong with taking a Nazarite vow? No. There's not. There's nothing wrong with that. Friends, you want to take a Nazarite vow, knock yourself out. I do it every, all this, <laughs> that's the ending of the Nazarite vow. Yeah. I just end it every day. Yeah. The, the, the point is, a lot of people will say, well, he, he shouldn't have done this because he is now putting himself in a position of agreeing with those who are zealous of the law. That makes sense at some level, doesn't it? Shouldn't he not have done that? Shouldn't he have opposed like he did the Galatian church? Shouldn't he have done that? And the answer is no, he shouldn't have. Not at all. What data does Paul have at this point in time? The only data he has is what the elders and, the, and James have told him. That's all, they have, all he has. Does he have a relationship, a current relationship with the church in Jerusalem? The answer is no. He hasn't been there for years. All these people have gotten saved since he's been there. He doesn't know what's going on. He has no relationship with these people. All these people know about Paul is what they have heard. So, with regard to Galatians, because certainly if you've read Galatians, what do you find in Galatians? In Galatians, you find that Paul is pretty brutal, isn't he? Just in chapter 3, and I chose one of the less brutal ones. He's pretty brutal with the Galatian church, isn't he? Why is he so brutal with the Galatian church? He, he, he believes they've fallen into the error, and they have, but... His response is based upon something, isn't it? He has a relationship with him. He knows. 
He has data. He knows what's going on. And he knows these people, doesn't he? He was recently there. He's the one who planted the church. He's the one who led most of them to Christ. Wasn't he? And he sees them turning their backs on the very things, ready? He has taught. Correct? They're turning their backs on the very things he has taught. What does he know about the church in Jerusalem? Only what the elders and James has told him, have told him. And what they've told him is not just, again, those four errors, right? The four things. What Paul knows also is that James and the elders haven't been what? They haven't been doing their job. So he doesn't know what they've been taught, does he? He doesn't know if they know anything. All he knows is they believe in Jesus, right? Well, supposedly, because the elders and, and, and James said they believe. So they know, or Paul knows they believe in Jesus, at least whatever it was that James and the elders taught him about Jesus, but they certainly don't know that Jesus is the absolute fulfillment of the law. They don't understand that the law cannot justify, do they? If they understood the biblical teaching of, that Paul has given, the Pauline theology, as well as what Christ even taught, they would not be zealous for the law, would they? No, they would not be. So what Paul knows at this point in time is that there's a church absolutely off the rails. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's, that, that's the struggle. That is now we're at the core, Tom, of the issue. What, and everybody, everybody sees this is a complicator. It's a massive complicator. What I would argue is that what Paul does here is not inherently sinful. We'd all agree with that. What I, what I mean by that is in, in, in doing these observations of the law, he's not sinning. But at the same time, what is he doing? He's joining in, seemingly. Why would he do that? And I'm reminded again of what Paul said elsewhere, that I may be all things, what? To all people. And what did he say? Specifically, he says, to the Jews, I will be as a Jew, right? And then he said, I think that answers this dilemma. He's not going to support their view. He's going to find out their view. He's going to figure out where they're at. He just got this data that is, it screams out there's a problem in the Jerusalem church, right? And he, now he's got to go get the personal data, doesn't he? he? He can't go wading in somewhere and, and start screaming and yelling about something he doesn't have true, may not have true data about. Understanding that we're all biased, right? We all have our own biases, so he's got to find out for himself. And so what does he do? He goes and he does something that's not inherently sinful, but he doesn't know exactly where. Are they really that zealous for the, for the law? Are they really? Or, or maybe not as much as you think. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. So he wants to find out. And so he goes and does these things. Along with these four. 
Well, for what reason? It's for observation. To try to figure out what's going on in the church. Now, with that in mind, we're not jumping today to 27 and following, but you will find next week, Lord willing, we're going to find next week, all is not well in the church in Jerusalem. Is it? If you read forward, you know it's not well. Because the Jews in Jerusalem get stirred up by people who are from Ephesus and other places. Jews from Ephesus and other places who are people following who? Following Paul around for what purpose? To cause distress and stir people up. And what happens in the church in Jerusalem? It goes up in arms. And the church in Jerusalem, at the end of this storyline, you're going to find the wheels come off. The wheels absolutely come off. That's what happens. Completely. And Paul gets arrested. And then when he gives his defense, it goes off the rails even worse. And the wheels absolutely come off. You see, all that is seen is not what is real. And if we could drag a few things out of this text, we're going to wrap it up right now. But if I could give you a couple things, number one, not in any specific order, all is not as it seems ever. It's important that we get this. To the elders and James at this point in time, the church looked like it was doing very well. Didn't it? Oh, we got this little glitch. That's how they're describing it, isn't it? We've got this little glitch. They're zealous for the law. But, but, but Paul, Luke, and all your other people, they're believers. Are they? There's tens of thousands. Man, things are happening. This is a happening place. Things are not as they seem. You almost get the sense when you read this passage that the Jerusalem church is pretty much verse 17 and verse 18. Now, there's probably a little more than that. But you get the sense that, it's, that the church in Jerusalem is really 17 and 18. And 18's not been doing well. But 17's doing real well. 18, not so much. So you can also say that not everything is what it seems at the elder ranks either, right? Can you see that? Not everything's always what it seems even at the elder ranks. And certainly everything's not as it seems on, on the, on the, at the church level, ever. And I want to remind you that there was an elder ministering here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I said that wrong. There was an apostle ministering there. And things still are not as they seem. This church seems to be doing great. It's not. This church seems to really go in places. And it is. Just not all the right places. Or any of the right places. This church seems to be like one that ought to be emulated. But it's not. <laughs> it's not. 
This church is a train wreck in Jerusalem at this point. It's an absolute mess. Things are not as they seem. They're just not. What else can we draw out of this text this morning? And it's all by way of warnings, friend, friends. It is. It's all by way of warnings this morning. Not only, not only is what you see not necessarily what is real, but also what you hear isn't necessarily real either. Does that make sense? Because they heard, right? The church heard about Paul. But what they heard was wrong. It was lies. What you see isn't necessarily what is real. What you hear isn't necessarily what is, what is real. What you find in this text, when you put it in its context, is this. The truth is the truth. It always was, and it always will be. And you're going to see a lot of things and you've already seen a lot of things. And you're going to hear a lot of things. And you've already heard a lot of things. And there's things that are going to look really good. And there's going to be things that are going to look really bad. And lo and behold, oftentimes you're going to find the things that look really bad are actually really good. And oftentimes the things you see that are really good aren't really good. Because it's not what we see or hear. It's what is true. And what Paul did is he went to find out what is true. What is the church at Jerusalem's view with regard to the truth? That was Paul's passion, wasn't it? What is truth? And what do people believe about the truth? Could I submit to you? It's really easy. It is, as a matter of fact, it is so easy, I call it chump change to say that so-and-so is a believer, a follower, a Christian. Use whatever term you want. It's easy to say that, isn't it? It's very easy. Which is exactly what the elders and James are saying here. Tens of thousands of believers. It's really easy to say. As the old phrase is, the proof's in the pudding, right? And Paul's looking for the proof in the pudding. And what he finds is not tens of thousands. There's tens of thousands of rebellious, lost people who are rejecting the truth. And you'll see that as it goes on in the context as we work our way through the next chapter or so. It becomes really clear. The Jerusalem church is in trouble. Why? Because on the one hand, they're believing lies. On the other hand, they're clinging to a different lie. Right? They're both lies. Lies about Paul and his theology. Lies about the use and function of the law as a believer. They're believing both lies. Ultimately, what does that mean about a believer, someone who claims to be a believer? If they're, if they're rejecting true theology and they're embracing error with regard to the law, what does that mean? 
ultimately. They are anathema. They are devoted to destruction. Are they not? They are accursed. That's what Paul says. But by looks, if all we do is just ignore some things, whoo, look what's going on. But you know, what we could drag out of this text is, guess what? You can't ignore. You can't. Can you ever ignore? Can I ever ignore? Not till glory. Because <laughs> once the judgment comes, it'll all be sorted, right? It'll all be sorted. Till that point in time, what, where should we be? Can I say this? I would argue this passage is not even primarily about the church in Jerusalem and how we need to be careful as we think about church. You know what this, church is primarily, this text is primarily about? It's really easy for you and I to get duped. It is really easy for you and I to think we're believers when we're not. These tens of thousands are pretty well convinced they're believers. The elders in James certainly think they're believers. It's easy to dupe someone else. The church in Galatia thought they were believers, didn't they? Now, there is a faithful remnant, right? The Scriptures tell us there's a faithful remnant. And I think we see even in this text there's a faithful remnant. But it's very easy to dupe others. I would argue it's easy to dupe ourselves as well into thinking that we're believers when we may not be. That's why Hebrews says, be after today while it's still today, right? As it says in Hebrews. Examine ourselves, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Examine yourself to see if you're of the faith. And you see those kind of themes over and over and over again. Why? Because it's really easy to be self-deceived. And it's really easy to be deceived by others. And it's really easy to deceive others. The deception is very easy every direction. Every direction. Yeah. Sure. That, that, that's a good question. I don't think so. I think it was more gathering data than anything else. And he's not undergoing the vow. He's just at the conclusion of the vow. It's the conclusion of the vow. It's the fulfillment of the vow. Yeah, the purification comes at the end. It's the beginning and end, but he, th at this point, he's doing the end along with them, not the beginning. They're going through the That's why they're shaving their head. It's the end because they had to grow their hair real long. And uh, the idea is kind of like he's doing the same thing they're doing at the end of their vows to show, you know, to, to, to try to, you know, be there and observe and see what's going on everywhere, I think. Now, is it possibly he could be winning? I don't think so because I think that would cause, that would, it's just my way of thinking, Tom, um, to, to the idea of, of winning that if, he, if, he, if he's already, if he didn't have the data that the elders and James gave him, I would say, yeah, absolutely. But with that data that they gave him, I think the idea of winning an opportunity to talk to them in light of that, I think that would be a deception. And I don't think, I don't think he would go along with that because of that data that, that the elders and James gave. Without that data, I would, I would see that. But I think that what he's doing more is he's, he's there trying to figure out what in the world's going on. Yeah. 
He's thinking that, it, it, that, that there's something going on. Yeah, and their data may very well be correct. I just want to check it out to get my data. Yeah, I think that's what's going on there. So he goes to gather data. And then when we, <laughs> seven days later, all of a sudden everything goes crazy. So we'll see that as we work our way through it here. Okay, next week and the week after or so. Um, you just see it dramatically shifts. But I, so I think what's going on there is just a gathering of data. He's trying to figure out what exactly is going on. And that's a great way to do it. The point is that we need to be careful that we are what? Examining ourselves. That's an ongoing thing. Because it's he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Right? It's not the one who prayed a prayer back in, in the dusty recesses of time. It's the one who perseveres to the end. And that persevering to the end is caused by the Holy Spirit that is actually at work in true believers. So if the Holy Spirit is actually at work in true believers, guess what's going to happen? We will persevere to the end. And we will grow in our understanding of true theology. We will not be zealous for the law over the long haul. Oh, we may be early on when we haven't connected the dots yet by the Spirit, right? Because He doesn't open our eyes all at once. But when it goes on and on and on, it says something. Doesn't it? Yes, if the, what God says about how he works in people is anything, it does say something about people. If I may use a, a silly illustration, but it's not silly, it's sad because so many people have sucked into it, but when you get these happy, clappy, prosperity preachers, and I meet all these cr people who claim to be believers who ha are just absolutely sucked into all that garbage. It's heresy. And then when you talk to them about it, they just defend it. And they stay in it. And they stay in it. And their defense is a butchery of the Scriptures or not involved in the Scriptures at all. It says something about them. It does. And it also says something about the believer, the, the other believer who never deals with those things. It says something about those people. And it's important that we recognize that. All that is seen is not real. All that is heard is not right. Let God be true and what? Every man a liar. Let God be true. We look to the things that are eternal, not temporal. And realize that God will always preserve a faithful remnant and let us pray that we are not duped, that we are not deceived. Because by very definition, you don't know when you're deceived, right? You don't know. Let's pray. God, open my eyes to see. Open my eyes to see how glorious you are, because that's the point. Open my eyes to see how glorious and how majestic and how, how massively beautiful you are. Help me to see the great depth and width and height of your love. Because it's there that the errors will be exposed. Help me to know you. Help me to know the Father and the Son who He sent. Because it's there that it is all exposed. Draw me into the light, God, and keep me in the light. I want fellowship with my Savior. 
And I know that in fellowship with my Savior, I'll fellowship with the true believers. Because if they're in the light and I'm in the light, the truth is being exposed for both of us. Amen? And Christ is the light. And that is it. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We acknowledge, freely acknowledge, that we are finite, frail, easily duped people. Our only hope is you. Our only hope is that your spirit will work in us, opening our eyes to see the absolute majesty of Jesus Christ. Our only hope is that we will see the absolute beauty of our redemption. Lord, I pray that you will protect us from seeing a view of our redemption and a view of other things. I pray that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Glorify yourself in us. In your name I pray. Amen.